0: Well, good morning. Great to see you. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. And I confess to you that I have been just so excited to get to this particular passage. I was thinking about how, uh, it's like when you watch those old war movies and they, they got a clear shot, they think, but then the commander says, hold, hold, and they're like, no, but I got he's hold, wait. We've, we've encountered Saul of Tarsus now twice in our time leading up to this passage, in each of those times, I thought, I'm so excited to talk about what God has done in this man's life. And each time, I was like, no, hold, wait, it's not, it's not yet time. But this morning, as we look at Acts 9, we come to what I consider to be one of the most remarkable, faith-inspiring, awesome stories in all of the book of Acts. This is the one that just impresses me. Every single time I come to it, I feel my heart coming alive. I hope that some of that will be conveyed to you this morning as we consider this story of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Now, as I mentioned, we've seen him twice already, so if you've been tracking with us through the series, then you've already encountered this man, Saul. Uh, We remember when Stephen was stoned, there was a, a crowd and they were about to stone Stephen, and before they did, they laid down their cloaks at the feet of this young man named Saul, and that's an interesting detail and you might wonder, well, what was it about this boy that looked, uh, he looked like a coat check, this young man? What, what was it about him? Well, it wasn't that he was, uh, looked like someone capable of watching coats. No, one commentator notes, the fact that the witnesses laid their clothes at Saul's feet suggests that he was already the acknowledged leader in the opposition to the early church. So he wasn't just some guy, you know, who just happened to be there watching the coats. No, he was, he was the leader. He was the instigator And he stood and he watched as they stoned Stephen to death. Not to be too vivid, but they stoned him to death. Jagged rocks were thrown at this man's body as it was broken and bleeding. I can't, in my mind's eye, even imagine the grotesque scene that that would have been up until the point when Stephen's body lay lifeless on the ground, unrecognizable from who he was. I can't imagine that. And I certainly can't imagine standing and staring and watching, but not only did Saul stand and stare and watch, the text says in Acts 8 verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. You know, you walk away from an experience like that and you wonder if Saul felt some remorse, if Saul began to question Am I in the right here? How could I be a part of something so wicked, so vile, so evil? But the text seems to suggest that he walked away from that invigorated and ready to go find out more of these heretical Christians. The text says in verse 3, Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Let's make sure that we have a clear idea of who Saul is as we come to our passage this morning, lest we miss the miracle. Families fled for their lives from this man. Mothers moaned over the death of their sons because of this man. Children grieved that mommy and daddy had been dragged away and thrown into prison because of this man. Remember, the the church at this point is located in this one isolated region. It, It hasn't yet branched out to its full extent. Meaning, I'm probably not exaggerating when I say that every single member of the church, every Christian at this time, would likely have been impacted in some terrible way by Saul of Tarsus. They all have the the salvation through Jesus Christ in common, but most of them also have the the pain of of what Saul has done in common as well. He was infamous. He was wicked. He was a lost cause. And with that picture fresh in your memory, look with me now to Acts chapter 9. We're going to read from verse 1 all the way to verse 25. Hear now God's holy Inspired, inerrant, living, and active word to us today. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. For behold, he's praying, and he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and kings. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? Has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving That Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but the disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, this is a lengthy passage, but I think we could summarize what we see here with this one phrase Here we find a portrait of conversion, a powerful, portrait of conversion and before we go any further I want to clarify what what we mean by that term conversion because since that's going to be framing our time in the text I don't want to assume for a moment that we're all on the same page what is conversion perhaps it would be helpful to begin with a statement of what it is not what is sometimes assumed to be conversion is not something that you add to your life Uh, you know maybe you've had uh, the unfortunate encounter of, of talking to someone who would identify as a christian they'd say there's someone who's experienced conversion and what they mean by that is that they they attended a service one day when their life was at a low and they heard uh, an emotional appeal and they raised their hand and then they went back home and and all of the sin that was there before remained and all of the pride that was there before remained and all of the I- idolatry that was there remained they, they simply tried to add jesus into the mix And so they sit in the same spot week after week and they mumble their way through the same songs and they trudge through their reading plan but they've tried to add Jesus but that's not conversion. Jesus is not an additive. He's not a hobby. He's not an accessory. If you're sitting here and you think, well, that was my experience, then I want to tell you, you've not experienced conversion. That's not it. Neither is conversion self-help or renovation you know it's it's often the case and perhaps it's the case even this morning that that people will come and, and they'll they'll sit under the preaching of the word because they realize that something's wrong in their life my marriage isn't what i want it to be and you know, my kids that something's off it's not going the way that i thought that it would i you know you i'm lacking in self-discipline something's just off something's distorted and so you come and you think, well, maybe this will be the renovation that I need. Maybe I can find something here, some tweaks, some fix. And if, if that's you here today, I want to tell you, we are really glad that you're here. Really glad that you're here. And actually, Jesus is the answer to our marriages, and he's the answer to our, our children and the answer to the things that plague us. He, he, truly, he is. But you need to know that Jesus isn't in the business of, of minor tweaks and renovations. You know, one old preacher said it this way. Conversion is no repairing of the building, but it takes all down and erects a new structure. This is why baptism, as we celebrated last week, is the initiatory sign of conversion in the church. Because it it visibly illustrates the facts of what has happened in conversion. Because the old me did not need a renovation He did not simply need some modifications and some upgrades. No, the old me died with Jesus. He was buried with him. And then as I came out of the water, that was not just a new renovated me, that was a a new creation in Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. Conversion is the transformation of one thing into something entirely new. That's conversion. Saul of Tarsus did not need addition. He did not need repair. He needed conversion. He needed a comprehensive head to toe, mind to heart, to soul, to strength transformation of his life, and that's exactly what God did. And so we're going to celebrate that in this beautiful, powerful portrait of conversion. We're going to pull out five lessons. We're going to zoom in on these details so as to learn the lesson. The first thing we want to zoom in on is is this first detail, a self-righteous man That's the first thing we see in this story. And it's important that we catch this detail because Saul did not see himself as a villain. Let's start there. You know, we've been been creating this picture in our mind of Saul. We need to understand that Saul's picture in his mind of Saul was not the same. He saw himself not as a villain, but as the hero. He saw himself as doing that which was right. He saw himself as pleasing God by pursuing the heretics. He saw himself as... Good, noble, righteous. Now, it's important that we start there because a lot of us have more in common with Saul than we'd like to admit. Now, I'm not suggesting here that there's someone in the room who has been chasing down Christians and stoning them to death or throwing them in prison. I don't think that's the case this morning. But we're glad that you're here if that is you. And yet, I would say, while the, uh, the overflow of, of Saul's sin it was distinct and unique, The root of his sin is all too common. I often see it in myself. Saul was self-righteous. What does that mean? It means that when Saul looked at the man in the mirror, he didn't see a need for Jesus. He saw himself as good, as we said, as moral, as intelligent. He certainly, as he looked in the mirror, did not see himself as a sinner in need of a savior. And in this way, many of us have more in common with Saul than we'd like to admit. And, and we need to recognize this as we go into the world and proclaim the gospel, because sometimes I think we forget that this was us. You know, I, sometimes I think we go into the world assuming that people are walking around with their heads low, saying, I'm the worst, and I need a Savior. And it is very often the case that that's not the narrative at all. That we're looking in the mirror, and, and the narrative that we're encountering, and the people around us, it's the same narrative that was in our heart. We're looking in the mirror and saying, I'm good enough. I can do this. Right? I did it my way. So the question is, is that true? Are you actually ready to stand before a holy God? The God who made you. The God whose world this is. The God whose law is written into the very fabric of the world that you're walking in. The God whose law is imprinted on your heart and you feel it. Are you ready to give an account to him for the things that you've said? for the things that you've done. The things that you haven't said that you should have and the things that you haven't done that you should have. God, as he searches your heart and exposes your thoughts and reveals the details of your life that you thought you had concealed from every eye, are you going to be able to stand before him? Saul looked in the mirror and he thought, I can. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But the self-righteous man or woman finds a way to stack all of this evidence, looks, looks over my life, looks over my actions, looks over my thoughts, and finds a way to stack all of the evidence in such a way that I can believe the delusion that I am in fact ready to stand before the judge. But we are not. Saul, for all his moralism and his intelligence, was living in rebellion to the God who made him, and he was falling headlong into hell, and he was doing it with confidence. And I was that man, and many of us were. And perhaps some of us still are. But God knows how to save to the uttermost. So as we begin with this portrait of this self-righteous man, and we we stare at this portrait of conversion, the second thing that we find is a Jesus encounter. If a person does not encounter Jesus, then there can be no conversion. And now here I want to be really clear. I want to make sure we hear this. If you look at the the overarching frame of of what we're working through today, notice that I said a powerful portrait of conversion, not the powerful portrait of conversion. That's important because conversion's not always going to look exactly like this. You know, your encounter with Jesus is not going to look exactly like this. I see great wisdom in the way that Luke, inspired by the Spirit, puts together the book of Acts. You know, we just saw how the... uh, the samaritans were transformed and how did that happen was through the preaching of philip and then we have the story of the ethiopian eunuch and he encounters jesus as he studies through the book of isaiah and now here saul encounters jesus through this miraculous theophany and each of those stories is different and yet in each of those stories what happens a powerful jesus encounter look at verses three to four it says now as he went on his way he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now this encounter changed Saul's life completely. But I think it's worth noting that this wasn't actually Saul's first encounter with Jesus. Look at verse 5, very next verse. Saul says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Just think about that for a moment. In that statement, Jesus is identifying with his church. Saul saying, Who are you? When have I met you? And Jesus says, Saul, you, you've already met me. You know who I am. You saw me, Saul, as you watched Stephen's lifeless body you saw me, Saul, as you were pulling those men and those women out of their homes. This isn't the first time we've met, Saul. Saul had encountered Jesus before. Now, I imagine that this this vivid encounter, this humbling, sobering encounter was probably fresh in Saul's mind when he wrote these words to the Corinthians. He said to the church, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. This impacted Saul's theology. He understood that we are one with Christ and he identifies with us. Yes, Saul had encountered Jesus, but he was too blind to see what was right in front of him the whole time. But God had a plan to open Saul's eyes because we can rest assured, brothers and sisters, God always gets his man or his woman. I want to just maybe pause here and take a moment to soak up a bit of comfort that I've suspected over the last few weeks I think we need. You know, we've... um, been encouraged I hope as we walked through Acts 8 and we saw how God transformed the Samaritans Philip preached the gospel went forth and the city was changed and then we were so encouraged last week as Pastor Rob came and he showed us how how Philip walked up to this uh, Ethiopian eunuch and how they just they studied the scriptures together and and his life was changed and we went from here And we were reminded two weeks ago that we got to preach the gospel with courage and boldness. And we were reminded last week we got to invite people to open the word of God and and God changes lives this way. And all of that's true. We went away encouraged and yet I would guess that some of us also went away simultaneously deflated. Because your loved one has heard the sermon. And your loved one has sat through the studies. And this miracle that you're seeing in Acts 8, is not what you're seeing in your life. And we're wondering, when, when is God going to... Does this mean that my loved one, that the person that I've been ministering to, that they're out of reach, out of touch? Saul looked like someone who was out of reach and out of touch. Look here. He, Saul had heard all the sermons. Saul had studied the Word. Saul knew the Word of God probably better than anyone else in Jerusalem. That's who he was. And yet Saul was so far from Jesus... That it'd be hard to think of anyone who could be further. Think about this. Was anybody praying for the conversion of Saul of Tarsus? I doubt it. Maybe. We don't know. Well, let me ask this. Was anyone actively pursuing opportunities to share the gospel with Saul of Tarsus? The text tells us that they were fleeing for their lives from this man. Everybody who had the message of, of transformation, were running in the opposite direction. Christians were fleeing. He was such a lost cause, I can't think of a, someone who is more of a lost cause that's ever walked the earth. That's Saul. But in an instant, everything changed. And I just find myself reading this passage, and I, I think we need to soak up as much comfort as we can while we're here. Do we believe that God can do this? Help our unbelief. He can do all things. The self-righteousness, the spiritual blindness, the arrogance, the 10,000 objections, every seemingly insurmountable obstacle that had kept Saul away was overcome in an instant. Why? Because he encountered Jesus. He encountered Jesus and that changed everything. It brings us to the third thing that we see in this powerful portrait of conversion, We see a humbled heart. Look with me at verses 8 to 9. It says, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So Saul, most of you know this, maybe you don't, Saul was a student of Gamaliel, Uh, Gamaliel was the mind in Judaism. He was the top teacher. He was the guy. If you were a student of Gamaliel, that meant that you were one of the most prominent, most powerful minds in your your city, in the whole community. Now, not only that, we learned that Saul was the top student under Gamaliel. He was a brilliant theologian, and here he had left Jerusalem to oppose the prideful uh, followers of Jesus. He had gone after this sect and he left Jerusalem with great aplomb, and he's got a note saying, I've got permission to bring all these heretics back, to throw them in prison. And yet, as he came into Damascus, he was blind and being led by his friends by the hand. This was a humbling experience. They brought him to a safe place. I don't know if you've ever led someone by the hand. You know, you play those games where someone's eyes are closed. It's embarrassing. You're tripping over things, you're, you know, you're, you're. Wonder, want to make sure you don't bump into anything. So this is Saul. This guy, who know, he, he, the know-it-all, the man. He's led in, feeling around. They bring him to a room and he sits there and, and he refuses to eat and he refuses to drink and he just sits there in this darkness and he waits for instruction from the Lord. And here we are reminded powerfully of what James teaches us in James 4. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This experience must have been humiliating for Saul and yet it was what he needed the old man and his old way of thinking needed to die a humiliating death before the spiritual rebirth could take place and by the way this is the way that God so frequently works isn't it you know so many of us can point back to the time when we were stumbling through life blind when we were we were humbled brought to an end of ourselves and that's what we see here he's He's being humbled. Up until this point, Saul was so self-assured that he didn't even recognize his dangerous position, which is true of, of everyone in their sin. When, we are, when we're dead in our sin, we don't see the things we need to see. Right? We don't see God's holiness. And we don't see our own sin. And therefore, when, when somebody comes and talks to us about this great problem that we have, we don't recognize it as a problem. And if we don't recognize what God has diagnosed to be our problem, that he is holy and that we are not, then we're not going to lay hold of the solution that he's provided. That's what we see with Saul. This, it, he doesn't need it. Saul thought he was good. So do some of you, I would imagine. But Jesus disagrees. Jesus said no one is good except God alone. Saul thought he was righteous. Thought he could do enough in his own strength to please God. If anybody can do this, Saul thought I can do this. It was only after his encounter with Jesus that he could agree with the psalmist. No, none is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Saul had rejected Jesus because he thought this whole gospel solution was a sham. He thought it was nonsense. He didn't agree with this problem that was being presented to him. Therefore, he didn't need this foolish solution. And that's the way it goes as we go out and we share the gospel with people in the world. We shouldn't be disillusioned as we share this with people and they say, I don't need this. Saul could write later from experience when he wrote to the church in Corinth and he said, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It is. It's a solution to a problem that I don't have. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Ironically, it was only when Saul lost his vision that he was finally able to see. C.S. Lewis is exactly right when he says, every conversion is the story of a blessed defeat. See, there can be no conversion until that defeat has taken place, that knee has bowed. The heart that doesn't bow is the heart that has not yet seen the king. But when Saul truly encountered Jesus, everything that he'd ever trusted in in the past fell to the floor. And he was left waiting for God to do what only he could do. In that moment, Saul saw that he was a sinner. He saw that he did need a savior. And until a person sees that, they will not lay hold of the glorious hope of the gospel. Augustine explains, when anyone knows that he is nothing in himself and has no help from himself, the weapons within himself are broken and the war is ended. And it was as Saul sat in the darkness with his vision taken from him, not eating, not drinking, humiliated, embarrassed in this city with a letter in his pocket that he could go arrest all of the Christians. It was there that he understood finally that he was powerless in and of himself. He needed a savior. That leads us to the fourth thing we see in this portrait of conversion. Fourthly, we find a faithful witness so Saul's sitting in the darkness, and at this time, Jesus speaks to a, a seemingly unknown man named Ananias. He says in, in verse 11, rise and go to the street called Straight. This is a famous street. It's still there today. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And at this point, Ananias responds in exactly the same way that most of us, I suspect, would respond honestly to the Lord. Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. That's a valid objection. Right? Ananias says, Jesus, there is literally a letter in his pocket that says he can take me to prison, and you want me to go knock on the door and say, hey, I'm looking for Saul of Tarsus. And yet God had done a work in Saul. And God had ordained that Ananias would be the one to pray for Saul's restoration. And Ananias, this seemingly unknown man of faith, took God at his word and he went. And he walked through the street. I wish we knew what he was thinking. You know, he's walking through the street to what should certainly be his doom. And he knocks on this door he says, I'm looking for Saul. And he's th- maybe hoping, please let this not be the house that Saul is. No, he's, come on in. And he lays his hands on Saul. He, he addresses him as brother Saul. I mean, you talk about faith. He lays his hand on this man who's, who's murdered Stephen. This man who sent all these Christians to prison. And before he's even heard from Saul, he just says, brother Saul. And in the name of Jesus, he prayed for the most notorious persecutor of the church. And the text says that it was like scales fell from Saul's eyes. Suddenly he could see. Not just with his physical eyes, but with the eyes of faith. Suddenly, in an instant, Saul is a new man. And he gets up and what does he do? Immediately, his first response of faith. Then he rose and was baptized. Because the old Saul, the persecutor of the church, had died with Jesus. A new man came out of that water. And in that moment, Ananias has the privilege of witnessing this amazing scene. I want you just to think for a moment about how awesome this must have been. All of Whatever fear Ananias was feeling, suddenly that's gone and he's just enraptured in joy. I suspect he's got some tears flowing down his face as he, as he has the privilege of baptizing Saul. As he has the privilege of seeing this miracle that he could never, ever explain. And you know what? Ananias nearly missed it. Because he had said no. And I laughed and I said, this is how we, isn't this how most of us would respond in the room? And I think it is. Most of us would say, oh no, Jesus, I've heard of Saul. Did you not know? He said no. Now thankfully the Lord was gracious to ask him again, but he didn't need to ask him again. Now remember, Saul, at this point, Saul is the brightest young mind in the city. Nobody's smarter than Saul. And God doesn't send to Saul the apostles. He doesn't even send one of the seven that have been set apart to care for the widows. He sends this nobody, Ananias. He comes to Ananias. He says, you're going to go. And Ananias says, I don't think that I should. And God leans in and he says, no, you're going to go. Nearly missed it. G. Campbell Morgan notes, when this man Saul was to be dealt with and his face set toward the line of his life work, when he was to be brought into the reception of all those spiritual forces which were necessary thereto, the instrument employed by God was an obscure man. And I'll tell you, as an obscure man myself, I feel very emboldened by this story. And I'm looking out over a room filled with obscure men and obscure women. And this just fills me with faith. I'm reminded that it was an obscure man who climbed into the pulpit on one snowy day when the preacher couldn't come and uh, little Charles Spurgeon was sitting in the back of the room. And this obscure elder climbed up and, and just opened the Bible and, and preached a sermon. And, and that day, the, what we refer to as the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, was, was saved under the ministry of some obscure man. It was an obscure woman, I'm reminded, who was praying for her son again and again, against all of the evidence, in spite of his, his rebellion, in spite of the sexual sin that was spiraling. She kept praying faithfully for her son until one day God answered this obscure woman's prayer and Augustine was saved. And the, one of the brightest minds, who I quoted today in this sermon, came to Christ. It was an obscure man who, who prayed for me when I was lying on the floor weeping and broken in my sin and God used this youth leader at a conference to come and and pray for me. God uses obscure men and women all the time. He delights to use obscure men and women. I pray that we would follow in Ananias' footsteps but I pray that we would go a step further. I pray that he wouldn't have to ask us a second time. I mean, how many times, can I just challenge you today, how many times have we been prompted by the Spirit? We, We read how Philip was was led by the Spirit and he was prompted, go talk to that man. And he gets closer and discovers he's reading Isaiah. Here Ananias is prompted, go find Saul, pray for him. How many times has God prompted us in a similar way? Go talk to that man. You should pray with her. That one right there, I bet that's happened to many of us just this week. You're talking to somebody at work, tears welling up in their eyes, they're talking about what a mess it all is and you feel inside of you, just pray with her. How many times have we been prompted by the Spirit of God, and yet, like Ananias in that first instance, we say, no, Lord, no, no, don't you know? Haven't you heard what she says? It, last week, we were, we were sitting at the water cooler. You should have heard what she said, Lord. She doesn't want this. How many times have we been prompted to go talk to that neighbor? Just go help him shovel. See what comes from that. Oh, that our answer to the prompting of God would always and only be, yes, Lord, I will go. Finally, in this powerful portrait of conversion, we see a transformed life. It's what you'll always see in a real conversion, a transformed life. The persecutor became the evangelist. The man who set out to squash the Jesus movement became the foremost ambassador for Christ. And the transformation, the text says, was instant. Look with me at verse 20. It says, And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. When Saul's eyes were opened, so too was his mouth. And there was a holy gossip that he couldn't keep to himself any longer. He was like that beggar that we described, the beggar who found bread. And he's going out and he's telling all the other beggars that he can find where to find that bread. He tells them Jesus is the Son of God. He's relentless with this message. We see in verse 22, we flip ahead. It says, Saul increased all the more in strength. And he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. That title Christ is another term for the Messiah. He was was proving that Jesus is the King we've been waiting for. He is the Son of God, the Son we've been waiting for. If you tracked with us through Advent this past year, you remember how we, we did this. You know, we opened up the Old Testament and we started in Genesis 3 and we followed this thread of promise that God said, A child was coming who was going to set us free. And he said he's going to come. He's going to land on the throne of David. He's going to be a king. He's going to lead us into victory. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. And what we see here is Saul's just opening the scriptures and he's telling his brothers and sisters, he's saying, he's here. He's come. It's Jesus. And he's relentless. And he's confounding them. They can't stop him. There's no argument. And those who are listening to him, they, they ask among themselves, isn't this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests this message that Saul is now preaching it's the same message that he thought was garbage foolishness months earlier It's the same message that filled him with rage such that he could watch as they murdered Stephen before his eyes. The same message that could enable him to pull men and women out of their houses and send them to prison. The same message that got him to get that note to say, I want to go find the ones in Damascus too. I need a note to make sure nobody tries to stop me. That same message is now here just flowing out of his mouth. He picks up where Stephen left off. Which in and of itself is beautiful, isn't it? The murderer of Stephen picks up the message where Stephen's voice trailed off and he he stands right in his place and he says, no, he's right. Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. And everybody who's watching just says, who is this guy? Who is this man? And that is the question that should follow every converted person. Who is she? Who is he? Isn't this the guy that used to get drunk with us at the party who is isn't this this is the girl she always had the best gossip in the office who is this person wasn't he an atheist wasn't she an addict who is this person that's what conversion should do because it's not an addition it's not a renovation it's a transformed life the Saul of Acts 9 he's he's got the same name as the Saul of Acts 8 but make no mistake He's an altogether new man and everybody who encounters him sees that. He has a new heart. He has a new mind. He has a new purpose. The world saw this change in Saul and as we come to a conclusion, I just want to ask a question. Has the world seen this change in you? If I could ask it more pointedly, are you converted? Have you been converted? I think it's worth asking that question. I uh, I can't remember where I heard it. I think I've heard it in a number of places, but I think it's true. Someone was noting that the, the greatest threat to the North American church today, it's not the media or the sexual revolution. It's not the rise of Islam. No, the most dangerous threat to the church today is false conversion. It's, it's the people all across North America right now who've convinced themselves that they're Christians because they raised their hands after a particularly emotional service. And they went home that day and nothing changed. The sin stayed, the pride stayed, the idolatry stayed, but, but they raised their hands. And so now they sit in the same spot Sunday after Sunday. They've added some Jesus, but they never died to sin. That transformation never happened. And this is something I'm particularly passionate about because I confess to you this morning, I was that guy. I was that guy. I led the worship team. I volunteered in the youth group. I set up all the chairs each week. But I was dead in my sin. I had never had a, an encounter with Jesus. I had never surrendered my life to Him. And there was no transformation just little renovations, little additions. And so I worked at faith. Like it, like it was a job, trying to be righteous in my own strength. But faith had never actually done its work in me. And can I tell you, it was exhausting. It was unrewarding. It was a miserable way to live my life. And it wasn't conversion. And I wonder if, if some of you even in the room right now, all of those adjectives ring true with your life. But can I tell you, Jesus found me. And Jesus found Saul. And I wonder if, if maybe this morning, Jesus isn't just opening up some of the eyes that were closed, even in this place. Helping you to see those things that you never saw before. The holiness of God. Have you seen that? In your heart, has your heart been exposed to the reality that God's holiness is not a, is not a joke? He cannot be in the presence of sin. It, he doesn't wink at it. It's not cute. It's not, it's not a, a little stumble, a, a cute little mistake. Sin is, it is wicked. He cannot be in the presence of it. He can't. And maybe for the first time, your eyes are being opened. And this is what happened to me that day in that gym. My eyes were suddenly opened to the fact that I am a sinner. And if that's who he is, and if this is who I am, then I have a problem. And I had heard that 101 times. My dad was the pastor. I had heard the sermon. I watched him sweating like me right now. I heard all of that stuff, but I'd never, with the eyes of faith, seen it. I am a sinner who, right now, is separated from a holy God. I am right now, under his wrath. If I were to stand before him right now for judgment, I'm not ready and that was when he opened my eyes to see that Jesus is the answer, that Jesus has lived a life that you can't live, that Jesus has paid the debt that you ought to pay, and he's offering it so freely, it's so beautiful. Confess your sins and put your trust in Jesus, and you're saved. It's scandalous, it shouldn't make sense. But I, I, I'd heard it a hundred times, I, I couldn't see it though, until God finally just knocked me onto my knees and... And God here knocks Sauls onto his knees, and he has a way of humbling us, you know. And suddenly, in an instant, there it is. And I don't, and I don't know when that instant is. And if I could just encourage us this morning, because again, I know some of us you're praying for your kids, you're, and you're wondering, like, well, how do I manufacture that instant? You can't. Who could have manufactured what happened for Saul? You can't do it. You know, who's who's the main character in, in Acts chapter nine? Is it Saul? I don't think so. He says like. Five words. Is it Ananias? I don't know. Ananias is really kind of just dragged along. Is it, it's, it's the nobodiness of Ananias that makes him so notable. Who is the main character in Acts chapter 9? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Who's the main character in conversion every time? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And so we as the obscure out we're we're here praying, we're here proclaiming, we're here opening and studying and pointing. But at the end of the day, who makes this happen? It's Jesus. And I find great comfort in that, and I pray that today would be the day when Jesus would be doing just that in our midst. People who thought that they saw and thought that they knew, people who, like Saul, looked in the mirror and said, I'm ready. I'm good, I'm righteous, and I'm ready. I pray that today would be the first day when the scales would fall off and Jesus would show, no, you're not. But you can be. If that's you, it's time to stop playing church. I want to invite you just to get on your knees before the Lord. Surrender. Perhaps that's embarrassing. It was embarrassing for Saul. Perhaps you need somebody to lead you up to the front by the hand. Surrender to the Son of God, the Messiah, King Jesus. Repent. Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that he has done it and that he is offering it to you today. Freely receive the spirit of God. We would love to pray for you. And then proclaim what he's done in baptism. Watch as you do that. Watch what happens as you offer your life to him. I'll tell you, this isn't the last time we're going to see Saul of Tarsus. We're going to see him a lot. God's got a God's got a story, a new story that he's writing for this brother, and I would imagine he's got a new story that he's writing for some brothers and sisters here today. So I'm just going to invite him now to speak to us. We're going to close in prayer, and then we'll respond in song. Oh God, we love you, and I do pray that you would right now be applying your conviction where it's needed, that you would be uh, applying your grace where it's needed, that you would help us to see rightly what we ought to see. God, and I don't, I don't pretend to know the blindness that exists in this room. Lord, this morning I was feeling myself just blind to your grace as I was feeling so burdened. Lord, and I needed you to open my eyes just to get to a greater glimpse of your grace. And Lord, maybe that's what someone needs right now. Lord, just to to understand the grace of God and Jesus Christ and the love that was displayed and the mercy. Lord, for others, perhaps right now, it's it's the holiness. There's just a carelessness, a cavalierness. And Lord, I pray that you would just open eyes to see your glory, that we would tremble before you. God, I, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know. But I thank you for this word. And I thank you for your promise that as it goes forth, it never returns void. Thank you that though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. So would you please now speak? I, I just ask that by the power of your spirit, you would, be, you would be picking up the sermon right now and preaching a better sermon than anything I could ever write in the hearts of each person who's here. And God, I pray that you would give us the, the humility to respond to you. Lord, whatever it is that you might be doing in us. Lord, we need you. And so God, I pray these things and I ask that you would do what only you can do. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Worship team, would you lead us?